This message is a presentation of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information about the ministry of Vortex Church, please visit us online at vortexchurch.com. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm the pastor here. Um, I am so happy uh, to be back with you. Uh, last week I, I was gone. Uh, uh, six months ago, we started a, a church or helped to start a church in Beaufort, South Carolina. It's Decibel Church uh, by God's grace, right? Uh, God has just been moving there. In six months, they're already running 500 people, seen hundreds of people uh, come to know the Lord. Uh, Beaufort is a city roughly the size of, of Albemarle, so it's only about 14,000 people. And so it, God has just been doing something amazing there. I'm one of their overseers, and so um, they're, they uh, have a few things that, that uh, they wanted me to come down and help with, and so I went down last week and uh, spoke, had the privilege to do that. Jimmy was here last week. Jimmy's not with us today. Jimmy had surgery on Thursday, so he's at home recovering from that, but Jimmy knocked the ball out of the park last Sunday, right? So, so thankful that we have a team of people that can do this. Someone sent me a text uh, Sunday afternoon and said, hey man, are you jealous? Are you worried? You worried? And I was like, no. I mean, that thought doesn't even enter my mind. Everybody listen to me. Here's why. Because when, when one of us gets better, we all get better. All right? When one of us becomes more adept at sharing the gospel, more uh, c- capable of contributing to the kingdom, we all get better. The kingdom gets better. So I was rejoicing with you as Jimmy was able to bring a powerful word. Just so you know, if you're uh, one of our church family, we're going to be uh, kind of going at this a little different today. So I'm going to go ahead and kind of give you some announcements as we get started with the message today. The first one is, I don't know if you know this, but next Sunday is Easter, right? And so um, one of the things is just kind of peer around the room right now, not a lot of empty seats, right? Y'all with me? Y'all see that? So here's what we want to ask you to do. If you're part of our church family, please commit to come next Sunday to the nine, all right? Because most likely our visitors are going to come to this service, all right? Come to the 9 a.m. service next week because the people that we ask to visit, the people, and, and I, I said this in the first service, and I, I mean it. If that offends you that I would ask you to go to a different service, maybe the greatest ministry you'll ever have is getting offended, leaving, and opening a seat for somebody to come and actually get saved in. All right, so um, I'm fine with that, all right? So we, we love you, um, but, but commit to come to the nine uh, next week so that we can create more capacity in this one. And if you come to the nine, um, what we also uh, want to ask is that maybe stick around for the 1030 and help us serve. We'll have more people than we normally have, so maybe stick around and greet, maybe stick around helping kids, something like that, um, wherever you serve, wherever your area of ministry is. Um, as far as small groups, small groups have kicked off recently, so if you're not plugged into a small group, you're missing out. I talked to Jimmy's wife last night, and she said, you know, one of the concerns, they had always been in kind of smaller churches where they knew each other, one of the concerns they had in coming to a church that was as big as ours was how would a crisis work? And she said, you know, Kevin, we have been cared for in a way that we never would have imagined because their small group has been there to take care of them throughout this moment. So we want to encourage you to get plugged into a small group. That's where you build meaningful, lasting relationships with people who are Love you and care for you. There are a few options if you're interested. Uh, we have virtual Bible studies that kind of kick off this week for men and women. Sign up at guest services. Um, also, if you're interested in financial peace, kind of last call for that, um, let me know and I'll get you plugged in for that. And the last thing to tell you is that we want to invite some people to be here for Easter. Uh, most people 
are waiting to be invited before they go to church. There's a ton of people out there who are inclined to go. Research shows us that 97% of people who don't actively attend church will go if someone actually invited them. And so what we want you to do is to invite your friends. I'm going to give you three different types of people that are great targets to invite. The first is people who do not have a church family. They are not involved in a church. Those are the primary people that we want to invite, people that you go uh, to work with, people who live next door to you, people who you care about that are in your family that do not have a church family. We want to invite them so that they can experience the life-giving message of Jesus. Uh, The second uh, is people who are not in a good place, people who are hurting, broken. They're going through difficult times right now. And the last is for people who are not prepared for this season of life. Uh, That's for those of us that have lost a job unexpectedly, Um, those of us who have lost family members unexpectedly, been thrust into a crisis that we were not expecting. Uh, Those are great people to invite to be at church next Sunday. So this Sunday, we're going to kind of begin uh, what is a two-week Easter celebration. So if you're here, uh, kind of, again, a little different approach to a Sunday service, uh, but that's good. And we want to to be willing to do that occasionally so that we can more accurately kind of go after what God wants us to see. Uh, today, as we get ready to kind of step into this this great moment, uh, we're going to zero in on this moment where Jesus has been kind of leaving this time where he's been traveling. He's been going from town to town, uh, preaching sometimes, sometimes performing miracles, but now his traveling is about to end as his sights have, have kind of set themselves on Jerusalem. And so let's go to Luke 19, beginning in verse 29. As he approached Bethpage in Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it. And bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. Now here's this odd moment where Jesus is preparing for his grand entry. I don't know if you've ever been around someone that was going to make a big entry. Jesus is about to go through this thing in the kind of backwards perspective that many of us would be thinking about, about a, a king that is entering into a city that he is dominating because he's going to ride into it on a donkey. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe if you, you've watched some of the, the Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit movies. I don't know if you've watched, um, like, uh, you know, Braveheart. Some of the, the imagery of kings is that they're always on white horses, right? I mean, always on, the, like, the most awesome-looking white horse that they can find come gliding in. Jesus is going to throw all of that out. As a matter of fact, many scholars believe that he, through God's providence, had set this up, that sometime along the way, Jesus had met the guy who owns this young donkey and had went to him and said, at some point, I'm going to need this. No one is to ride it from here on out. Wait for me. There will come a time that the Lord needs it. And he sent his disciples ahead to grab this donkey. It's actually going back to something that the Old Testament tells us about this moment. Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, 
on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What kind of king enters a city riding on a donkey? And you know, I I think that in that moment, Jesus was actually demonstrating something for us about who he was. Because Israel, see at that time, Israel had this belief that when when the Messiah came, when the the rescuer came, he was going to overthrow the occupied Roman government, was going to establish a brand new Israeli government that was going to dominate the world. And they would be able to show, world, this is why we're right The gospel is right. The the ways of God are right because look how strong we are. But Jesus enters Jerusalem looking rather weak and lowly. And look what happens. Matthew 21. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches. This is why we call it Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday because they're taking palms and putting them on the road from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered. Listen, the crowds answered. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Think about this with me. Jesus enters Jerusalem like a rock star. I mean, literally, he is perceived in that moment as being so important that they didn't even want his feet to touch the ground. Here are coats. Here are branches. Anything that we can do to roll out the red carpet for you. And as he entered, right, the only thing that we can kind of in Albemarle compare that moment to is kind of like we find out Kelly Pickler's at Walmart signing autographs, right? I mean, that's really what it's like because the whole city is a buzz. That Jesus has entered Jerusalem. And think about this. The crowd is asked, who is this? Who is this man? And Matthew records that the crowd said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Galilee. See, it's remarkable that in just a few days, the opinion of the crowd is going to shift on who Jesus is. See, the core issue of Scripture is life. Not biological life. Not talking about two cells coming together to create other cells or one cell merging. Not biological, but life. The idea of life that goes broader than breathing in a pulse. If I were to ask you right now, do you remember the moments that you were alive? There are moments that were flashing your head. You see, the issue of Scripture is life. So when we look at John 10, 10, where Jesus says this, it's very important. Jesus says the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. That's what a thief does. He steals, he kills, 
and he destroys. But my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. In one statement, very clearly, Jesus says, this is why I came. I came so that they can experience life. And I love what the ESV says about this, the way it translates that verse, where Jesus saying, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. For too many of us, if I were to say, remember those moments that you felt alive, you might remember, I remember the time that I heard my child cry for the first time. I just, that, that moment was powerful. I remember that time that my boss came in the office and after years of of working very faithfully, they came in and told me that I was going to get a promotion. I didn't even know that I was up for it. And in that moment, I felt so validated and so appreciated. But for too many of us, those moments happen at far too great of a sporadic pace. See, Jesus said, I came that you might have life abundantly. That those moments are not meant to be the exception, they're meant to be the rule. That's what life is supposed to be like. But we've wrecked that. We've wrecked that because we have the wrong opinion of Jesus. You see, in the tension between the time that Jesus enters Jerusalem on Sunday and what happens on Friday afternoon, we see the two perspectives that we look at Jesus through. And today you have to ask yourself this question. Who is Jesus to you? Is Jesus a king, the king that came to give you life? Or is Jesus a thief that came to take life away from you? You have to ask that question. Because, you see, in between those two moments, the crowd's opinion that is very fickle shifted. And I hate to tell you, but far too many of us experience that in our own lives. We look at Jesus and we say, Jesus, you're king. You're awesome. You're wonderful. I can only find life in you. And then Jesus says, oh, I want you to do this. And we go, "Uh uh-uh, I ain't going to do that. You don't know what you're talking about. Let Let me give you a few questions to think about. Do you look to Jesus as the only author of an authentic and fulfilling life? Do you look to Jesus as the only author to an authentic and fulfilling life? Or do you view his ways as thieves to living the kind of life that you want to live? I know many of us, many of us would say, you know that, I love Jesus. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. He's good. I love him. I like going to church. I like that. That's fun. I like my Christian radio. Right? I love me some K-Love. Right? We don't, we, well, many of us would say something like that. 
But do we look at the things that God asks us to do and realize that His ways are the only way to experience life? I'm going to give you two examples of ways that we don't do that. The first one is God's real clear. If someone offends you, you need to forgive them. But how many of you look at people who have wronged you and you say, no, I really like hating you. I enjoy hating you. As a matter of fact, I, I find that a lot more fulfilling and satisfying than forgiving you and living in peace. So you know what, God, you're wrong. The most satisfying way for me to live is not by forgiving. It's by continuing to hold on to bitterness because I really like hating this person that hurt me. And I think probably one of the most practical ways that we see that is in our finances. Many of you look and you can go into the Bible and look and go, hey, I, I see. It's God's plan that I be a giver. God's plan is that I give 10%, a tithe first, that a tenth of my increase always belongs to God. I see that. That's fine. I see that the Bible says that, but I'm not doing that. Because God, all you're trying to do is steal from me. It's my money. I'm going to do what I want to with it. Now, I know that you're the creator of life, and really, you've blessed me with everything that I have. But God, you're just trying to take from me. See, we have to look into the heart of Jesus and decide, is he a king who came to bring us life, or is he a thief who's there to take life away? And the perspective of thinking that he's a thief, well, by the end of the week, that's what the crowd thought. Let me tell you something that's important for you to understand as we begin to step into this next section. All right. But anytime we try to write our own life, anytime we try to become the author of our own life, we sin. Anytime you try to do it your own way, it's sin. Anytime you look at the heart of God and God has given you instruction and you go, God, I know that you want me to do this, but no, I'm not going to do it that way. It's sin. So the Bible gives us this in Isaiah 53, 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have left God's path. We have left the direction that God wants us to go to follow our own path to do our own thing. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. You see, Jesus on the cross bore the weight of all of our sin. As we throughout our life have looked into the heart of God, looked to his ways and said, no, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it my own way. God continually compiling the iniquity that came out of that, the inward brokenness, and then on the cross dumped it on Jesus in one of the most merciful 
and loving moments in all of human history. Because on the cross, God gave us a way to escape the brokenness of trying to do it our own way. Look at what the Bible says in Romans 5. Romans 5, 8. That God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, while we were still choosing to go down our own path, while we were still looking at God's directions and saying, no God, I won't do it that way, I'll do it my own way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, on Thursday night, Jesus would be betrayed His followers actually thought that this might be a moment where they could catapult him into a a messianic tirade to overthrow some of the government. But Jesus would submit himself to the arrest. He would be tried over the next few hours three different times, eventually landing in a Roman court in front of the Roman governor, Pilate. As Pilate realized that something was wrong with this whole mess, he would do everything he could to get out of it, including ordering Jesus to be scourged. It was a punishment where a a man would be taken to be beaten. He would be strapped over what is effectively a stump and a a whip that is, is multiple strands with Bones and rocks sewn into it would be used to beat his back. And with every lash, those bones would dig into his flesh. And as they would rip the whip away, his flesh would peel away as well. Many men died simply from scourging. And Jesus, after the scourging, is brought before the crowd, a bloody mess. Pilate, again, trying to get out of all of this, brings out a a murderous uh, inmate named Barabbas. And on this day, he has the privilege as the Roman governor to let one of them go. And he gives a choice to the crowd. Who do you want to let go today, Jesus or Barabbas? Thinking, I mean, here's this man who has done so much good. And here's this man who's done so much bad. The crowd has to choose Barabbas. But the crowd did not choose Jesus. They chose Barabbas. And they yelled, give us Barabbas. And after Barabbas is released, they yell to crucify Jesus. Pilate washes his hands of the whole mess. Jesus marches miles outside the city to Golgotha where he is nailed to a cross. As as nails pierce his wrists, then through both ankles. He's lifted up. His bones are broken. And internal bleeding ensues. His lungs begin to fill with fluid. Every breath that he takes, he has to put all of his weight down on his ankles so that he can push up and extend in his chest. Every breath is painful. And on the cross, in all that brokenness, Jesus absorbs the punishment for our sin. He 
is beaten when we should be beaten. He's whipped when we should be whipped. He bleeds the blood that we should bleed. So for the next few moments, we're going to pause and sing and remember the cross. Let's pray as we get ready to do that. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for a moment when you're willing to take on our sins. God, thank you for the gift that we find in that moment. So as we focus our hearts over the next few seconds, God, allow us in this room to experience the cross. The place where you defeated sin, where you bore the punishment for all of our failures. In the name of Jesus, we pray.